Sentire Media. On the 23rd of May, 1992, the Institute of Volcanology and Seismology of Mount Erice in Sicily reported a small seismic event between the towns of Isola delle Femmine and Capaci, outside the city of Palermo. The inhabitants of that area knew it was no earthquake. They suspected that it had been some sort of accident up at the quarry. Neither was right. The small seismic event was the Sicilian mafia detonating 500 kilograms of explosive and destroying a part of the motorway from the airport to the city of Palermo as the motorcade of anti-mafia magistrate Giovanni Falcone passed. Falcone, along with his wife and some members of his police escort, were killed. Cosa Nostra had managed to eliminate one of its most dangerous enemies. The Mafia's increased attack on the state came at an important moment in Italian history, when the foundations of the establishment were being shaken to the very core, and the Italians themselves sincerely hoped in a new, bright future for their country. At the time, I was not very much aware of what was going on around me. I was still the American boy, although I don't have a drop of American blood in me, I had come over from Pulaski County, Virginia, less than a year before, and probably didn't even know who the Prime Minister or the President were. Therefore, my memories of the moment are not so much tied to the event itself, but to my good friend Chiara and her newspapers. You see, in time, she would develop a strategy that we all admired and appreciated very much. It was particularly effective with our philosophy teacher. Chiara knew very well that Professor Beggi would get easily distracted when talking about current events. Therefore, when there was a risk of someone being tested, on a certain day, Chiara would show up with one of her newspapers and propose some sort of important topic that would set the philosophy teacher off on a tangent that would take up the whole of the hour, and once again, Chiara was our hero. She was beyond any suspicion when she looked questioningly at the teachers with her big, innocent-looking blue eyes. However, when we returned to school on the Monday morning after the bombing of Capaci that killed Giovanni Falcone, Chiara was just a young adolescent girl, desperately searching for answers from those adults that were important in our lives, our teachers. She wanted to know from them why it was that a man who had dedicated his whole life to serving the state could be abandoned by that same establishment and left to die. What were we to make of it? What were we supposed to think? The first couple of lessons went by without a peep from any of the teachers. After a while, it was Chiara who timidly asked one of them if they had anything to tell us about what was happening. Our Italian teacher said it was not of her competence and really didn't know what to say. Our science teacher was determined to convince us that if everyone did their job and what they were supposed to do, then everything would go well. 
as if we, being good at our studies, could stop the Mafia assassinating a man that would become a national hero. I think that was a very important moment in my transition into adulthood. The news of the bombing, Chiara and her newspapers, and most of all, the teachers who had no answers for us. It was perhaps then that I began to understand that, under all the natural, architectural and artistic beauty of the country, there was something very, very wrong in Italy. In the winter of 1979, the Public Prosecutor's Office in Palermo was starting to receive complaints that some of the magistrates were investigating local businesses and making things difficult for them. Under pressure from local businessmen and politicians, Head Magistrate Giovanni Pizzillo called in Rocco Chinnici. This is your department, he told him. It's that Falcone. Make sure you bury him with cases so he doesn't have time to cause trouble. This was how one of the most successful anti-mafia operations in history started. Giovanni Falcone was back in Palermo after 13 years in Trapani, which had been so tightly controlled by the mafia that hardly anything ever happened, not even the most minor crime. At the time he returned to Palermo, his birth city, it was openly said that the Mafia was in reality just an invention of the northern newspapers and the results of trials were decided over Sunday lunch. No one except those on the fringes of society, the outcasts, those that weren't part of any family or system or organisation, got life sentences. Among the various cases that were supposed to keep Falcone too busy to cause any trouble was the investigation into Rosario Spatola, a local businessman in construction who was accused of piloting tenders and paying bribes for them. Spatola also had important connections with the Gambino crime family in the United States. For the first time, a magistrate was focusing on banks, and for the first time, he was not treating every single crime in itself, but looking for connections to find an overriding organization that was known until then as the Mafia. It would later be the mafioso-turned-collaborator Tommaso Buscetta who would later inform Falcone that it was referred to within the organization as 
cosa nostra, our thing. The investigation into cases of tender fixing, which involved local businessmen and politicians, extended into an international drug trafficking ring between Sicily and the New Jersey Mafia. It was when Falcone started to ask for more details, such as bank information, that the first threats, anonymous letters with coffins and crosses on them, started to arrive, and he would start his life as a virtual prisoner, under escort, in locked, reinforced rooms. His time as a prisoner would last almost for the rest of his life. When asked if he was not afraid of the constant threat of death, he answered, Of course, you're you're always on the alert. You calculate. You get organized. You avoid repeated habits. You stay away from crowds and from situations that can't be kept under control. But you also acquire a certain fatalism. In the end, you can die for many reasons a car accident, a plane that explodes in midair, an overdose, cancer, or even for no reason at all. He was something new in the world of magistrates. He would wake up at five o'clock every morning to get some work done with a fresh mind, then go for a quick swim and be back at work in the office at eight o'clock. He started to investigate to study, to give leads to various members of the armed forces, to interrogate convicted criminals, and to travel between Rome, Catania, Palermo, and New York City. He was always known to be polite, reserved, and cautious. Falcone was actually assigned his first police escort at the end of August 1980, when a colleague of his, a magistrate called Gaetano Costa, was killed by the Mafia. Meanwhile, his investigation extended to include the false kidnapping and escape of the well-known Mafia banker Michele Sindona to Sicily. Afterwards, when his motorcade would leave, a helicopter would also take off to follow it. The newspaper Il Giornale di Sicilia the mouthpiece of the Sicilian powerful and organized crime, started its campaign to try and delegitimize Falcone in every way possible. Although he is now perceived as one of Italy's greatest heroes, the people of Palermo at the time saw him as an inconvenience. If he ever wanted to go to the cinema, which he did rarely, three rows of seats would have to be booked in front and behind him, and In the next three years, he would go to a restaurant only once. One day, as he was making his way back home, he heard a passerby exclaim, To have all that escort, he must have done something really terrible. The sentiment of many inhabitants of Palermo is perhaps best expressed by a letter sent to the Giornale di Sicilia, which was gladly published by a respectable lady by the name of Patrizia Santoro. She complained about all the trouble the police escort caused, with their sirens coming and going twice a day, not allowing her to watch her television programs in peace. She suggested that all the magistrates should be put together in a single building far away from the city. 
Falcone was a hated man. Ironically, not by the men of Cosa Nostra, who perhaps respected him as an enemy, but by people hidden in certain palaces of power, behind certain magistrates, certain bureaucrats, certain bankers who were engaged in laundering the mafia's dirty money, and by the politicians who would attend the funerals of mafia victims in the morning and then in the evening reach agreements with the so-called men of honour. On the 29th of July 1983, Falcone's direct boss, Rocco Chinnici, was assassinated. He had always believed in Falcone and had helped and supported him as the case of a fixed tender expanded into what would become a historical trial. Meanwhile, the mudslinging machine continued. Falcone was portrayed as the czar of judges, being too showy, wanting all the attention for himself, wanting to be famous. He was an inconvenient figure, never expressing open political opinions and showing no political affiliation. During his career, he would be criticised by the right for sticking his nose in things that he shouldn't have and by the left for not doing so enough. The investigation, meanwhile, continued to extend, also on an international level, becoming known in the United States as the Pizza Connection. Despite the opposition also within the magistrates, Falcone managed to find some good men to help him in his investigation. On the 11th of November 1983, he got a new boss, Antonio Caponnetto. He arrived to substitute the assassinated Rocco Chinnici. The Mafia and its powerful allies in Palermo saw this as a good thing. Caponnetto was close to pension age. Surely he didn't want to spend the last few years of his professional life at war with Cosa Nostra. Instead, it was he who founded the Anti-Mafia Pool, an organization of investigative magistrates and other members of law enforcement who managed to put away hundreds of mafiosi. This moment also coincided with a usually unexpected situation. For once, help was also coming from Rome, and the new organization received all the resources they needed. Shortly afterwards, things changed drastically for Falcone, for the anti-mafia pool, and for the mafia itself. You could say that the start of 1984 saw the beginning of the end of a certain version of Cosa Nostra. One day, Judge Falcone received a phone call from a colleague, De Gennaro. Buscetta wants to talk. Tommaso Buscetta was one of the most important bosses of the Mafia, known as the boss of the two worlds. He had been arrested in Palermo and released, arrested in Brooklyn and released, arrested in Turin and escaped, and now he was under arrest in Brazil and ready to be extradited to Italy. The 45 days of confessions gave way to a 329-page report. 
This was one of the first important examples of breaking the wall of omerta, the mafia code of silence. It was said that Buscetta was like a language teacher for the anti-mafia judges, who had already begun to understand some of the language and the movements and the silences and so on. If they had managed to start piecing things together bit by bit, Buscetta handed them a dictionary as well as a who's who of Cosa Nostra. Buscetta himself gives an example of how Falcone had learned the language of the so-called men of honour. Once he had asked a judge for a cigarette, Falcone had offered the informer his own packet, making first sure that it was not full. Buscetta received it gladly. Had Falcone, for example, offered him a new full packet, he would have seen it as a serious insult, as if to say, here, take this, you poor bum. Before Buscetta started talking, he warned the judge. I don't think that the Italian state really wants to fight the mafia. I warn you, Dr. Falcone, after this interrogation, you will become a celebrity, but they will try to destroy you physically and personally. Do not forget, the debt you opened today with Cosa Nostra will never be closed. The initial investigation transformed into an operation with over 300 counts of felonies, the discovery of information regarding 121 murders and 8,089 pages of documentation. On the 29th of September 1984, 366 arrest warrants were put into action. It was the hardest hit the Sicilian Mafia had ever taken. Next to the Ucciardone prison in Palermo, excavation started on the foundations for a super bomb-proof bunker that would house the trials against the Mafia. Cosa Nostra's counterattack was not long in coming. Two members of the anti-mafia pool were killed as well as dozens of family members of the collaborators and Falcone and one of his closest colleagues, Paolo Borsellino, were sent off in hiding by the ministry. They would later receive a hefty bill from the ministry for their two weeks of stay, one of the oddities of Italian bureaucracy. The trial, which came to be known as the Maxi Processo, the Great Trial, opened on the 10th of February 1986 and concluded on the 16th of December of the following year. No less than 19 life sentences were handed out, as well as other sentences for a total of 2,665 years. Men in positions of power who wished to take credit for the operation and newspapers hailed a new dawn for Italy and for legality. Giovanni Falcone was not fooled. He knew that perhaps the worst was yet to come. The Mafia would not just sit back and take it. After the great triumph of the trials for Falcone, a period of isolation and humiliation started. Many came out saying that they had had enough of this show-off attention-seeking magistrate 
and he was passed over for various offices. Like General Carlo Alberto dalla Chiesa, who had been killed five years earlier, the isolation of Judge Giovanni Falcone had started, and, as the general himself had said, that was when a powerful man could be killed. The real blow came when the founder of the anti-mafia pool, Caponetto, went into retirement and instead of nominating Falcone, the governing body of magistrates, nominated Antonio Meli. He proceeded to dismantle the anti-mafia pool and divide up its investigations. Falcone, in his predictions, had been correct. Perhaps he already understood then and Perhaps he already knew that the reach of the Mafia went far beyond organised crime, into the very heart of Italian politics. On the 21st of June, 1989, explosives were found near the home at the sea that Falcone would rent for the summer. He sent his wife Francesca away and started to sleep on the floor with a 38 calibre under his pillow. However, in all of this dark period, in all of the desperation, Giovanni Falcone never gave up, and in 1991, he had one more chance to play a role in defeating the Mafia. He was called to Rome, to the ministry, by the then Minister of the Interior, Claudio Martelli. Many enemies saw this as a sort of early retirement, or him being sent away in shame, from what he considered his real work. In reality, the minister was actually really intent on doing some good in the fight against the Mafia and allowed Falcone a lot of independence and freedom. And thanks to the input of the now ex-magistrate, the minister managed to force the then Prime Minister, Giulio Andreotti, to push through some of the toughest anti-Mafia legislation ever seen in Italian history. This was particularly ironic because, to this day, Giulio Andreotti is considered one of the Italian political figures closest to the Mafia. The Statute of Limitations was probably the only thing that saved him from a conviction in this sense. Falcone also managed to get the minister to manoeuvre against the new president presiding over the appeals for the 1987 Maxi Processo Mafia trials, Corrado Carnevale. This man had overturned many of the sentences handed out in the first level of judgment and released many mafiosi. Falcone managed to convince the minister to make sure they were back in prison. Carnevale and the mafia bosses, however, were not particularly worried. The trials had gone to the Supreme Court and since Carnevale himself would be presiding over the trial, things should have ended up quite well for the Mafia. It is at this point that once again, Falcone managed to intervene with an investigation into the way the appeals had been handled and managed to have Carnevale removed. Many of the sentences handed out in the first trial were confirmed at the Supreme Court, once again a vital blow to the Mafia. 
The killing of Sicilian politician Salvo Lima was the Mafia's first reaction, showing that they were not at all happy. Lima had been the friend of friends, the go-between for the political establishment and Cosa Nostra. This was also probably the event that meant that Giulio Andreotti would never achieve his dream of becoming president of the Italian Republic. So, in the end, Giovanni Falcone managed to deal one more decisive blow to the Mafia. You could add that, if we can say that it was thanks to Carlo Alberto dalla Chiesa that the Mafia was proved to exist, it is thanks to Giovanni Falcone that we understand what it is and what we need to do to fight it. It is almost painful to imagine what more he could have done had he lived. The explosion at Capaci was detonated at 5pm, 56 minutes and 46 seconds. Giovanni Falcone was rushed to hospital, where he died at 7pm. Paolo Borsellino, his friend and colleague, spoke at the funeral. Why did Giovanni not run? Why did he accept this terrible situation? Why did he not worry? Why was he always ready to answer questions about the hope that he felt? For love. His life was an act of love. Towards the city. Towards this land where he was born. Because if love is essentially and especially giving. For him and for those who were close to him in this fantastic adventure. Loving Palermo and its people meant giving to this land something, everything that it was possible to give of our morals and intellect and professional strength to make this city and the homeland we belong to a better place. Borsellino spoke about his dear friend, but he probably also thought of himself. He knew that he would probably be next. It was just a question of time. He was assassinated less than two months later. In life, Giovanni Falcone had been isolated and often ridiculed and humiliated. Now, he is considered one of Italy's greatest heroes. The airport of Palermo bears his name and that of his colleague Paolo Borsellino and you can find roads, buildings, schools, dedicated to him all over Italy and indeed the world. If you wish to join the FBI, for example, you will find a bust of Falcone outside of the headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. Young men and women wishing, perhaps a little naively, to become American heroes must pass every day in front of an Italian one.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.